the passage for this morning from Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, said Christ, and set a hedge around it and dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and they, him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, having still one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them, saying, sent to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him, and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Thank you. You may be seated. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The allure of sin is always that it suggests we can exist somehow outside of the sovereignty of God. That is his rule over all things, including our lives. And sin supposes that God's agenda is somehow subject to our approval subject to our willingness to participate in it. And that self-centered and selfish perspective is nothing short of treason against heaven. And despite its audacity, and it is audacious, despite that it will not prevail. Yet even Jesus Christ when he came into the world to accomplish God's redemptive purpose, he was met with that kind of resistance. We don't need God's plan as he's revealed it, and we don't need you, Jesus, whom he sent, the fullest revelation of God that there could possibly be. He was met with resistance chiefly from the religious leaders of Israel, as we've noted during our times together studying Mark's gospel. They should have recognized him of all the Jewish people, and they should have embraced him and urged the people to embrace Christ. They should have heard the preaching of John the Baptist saying, this is the one, the one that the law and the prophets pointed to. Him you should believe. One that is greater than I, a prophet, am. One whose sandals I'm not worthy to bend over and unloose. They should have heard John. They should have heard the scripture that God had made known to them as a people. But the problem was that while they recognized him, he was a threat. 
and he was a threat to their own agenda. He was a threat not to God's kingdom, he was a threat to their personal kingdom. And their kingdom was opposed to God's. Now there's a series of encounters that the Lord has here at the end of his ministry as he's made his way back to Jerusalem and he's there for the Passover but his eyes are fixed on the cross. He's come there for that purpose to be the Passover lamb, to be the sacrifice for sin, that atonement, to satisfy the wrath of God for those who trust in him. But while he's there, he has these encounters and beginning in Mark 11, verse 27, all the way through the end of chapter 12, these encounters sharply contrast the earthly kingdom that the religious leaders wanted and the actual kingdom of God that Jesus offered. And I want you just to think for a moment with me this morning, is your idea of the kingdom of God compatible entirely with what God has revealed in Scripture? Keep that in mind. For these people said there was a kingdom of God that they represented, and it was far from the reality. And then in chapter 13, we'll find Jesus teaching the disciples about what to expect in this life while they are in the kingdom on this earth until he returns. That's just sort of a, a broad overview of where we've been, where we are now in chapter 12, and where we'll be, Lord willing, at some point in time, I'm able to share chapter 12 and 13 with you. The Lord doesn't return before then. But here's Jesus encountering these religious leaders who say they are the authority on the kingdom of heaven. They are the authority on what God is doing in the world. They're the authority on why God created things and why it, everything is the way that it is. They're the authority on truth, on reality. The why of everything and the, the what of eternal life. And so Jesus is there and he will make his way eventually to the cross. But Mark 12 verses 1 through 12 continues to highlight those who rejected Jesus as the righteous servant of the new covenant that's presented in Isaiah's prophecy and it it's very obvious as we go through Mark that Mark is referencing Isaiah's prophecy and Isaiah speaks of many things he speaks of the the exile in Assyria and of Babylon and speaks of the the disobedience of the people and encourages them and urges them to repentance and faith although God tells them they're not going to do that they're going to keep heading in the wrong direction but you keep preaching a lot of things revealed in Isaiah, big book and full of important information, but very much of it, all of it, points to Christ. Christ is that righteous servant, says Mark. And using imagery from Isaiah, Jesus gives a parable to explain that their rejection of him as that promised servant, the Savior, their rejection of him would not prevent God's clearly stated purpose. This morning I want to borrow the terminology from this passage that Jesus uses as he quotes Psalm 118, and we'll talk about that later, but Jesus is a stone. 
Jesus is a very important stone in the building of the church from the beginning of the creation, from the beginning of the fall when God first instituted his salvation, his redemptive purpose, and started redeeming people by grace through faith in the promised Savior. That church that was building the Old Testament now is at its fullest representation in this world. Jesus is the main stone, and we're built on that stone. Keep that in mind as well. But he's a rejected stone by those who should have seen his importance in the building process of the church. And without him, we wouldn't be here this morning. We would have no one to worship because we would have no way to worship God, no one to bring us to God as our great high priest. But I want us to look at that parable first. So if you will, look at verses 1 through 9 if you have your copy of Scripture. Now after Jesus exposed the Jewish leader's rejection of his authority back in the previous passage at the end of chapter 11, he began to speak to them in parables, we're told. In other words, Jesus used a parable to illustrate how far they were willing to go to reject his authority, how far they were willing to go in their own hearts to declare and conduct the affairs of the kingdom of God in their own way. Again, I want you to think about your perspective of the kingdom, and I want you to compare yourself to the religious leaders and make sure, of course, you're not looking at it from the same perspective. But Jesus tells us here in parabolic form, that is, taking a, something or things that are familiar to us and weaving them together in a story so that we can better grasp what he's trying to say. And he's done this. You remember back in chapter 4 of Mark, Jesus began telling parables so that the truths were hidden to the crowds that were just fickle and wanted only what he could give to them physically, healing and food and what have you. They were enamored by his ministry, but they weren't listening to his words. And he began teaching in parables and told the disciples, these are the mysteries of the kingdom of God. They're told in parables. And he quotes Isaiah and he says, they'll see and not see and hear and not hear. But to you has been given the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And he explained the parables to them in private. But this is a parable given directly to the religious leaders. These are the chief priests. These are the scribes, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. The, this, this is the religious elite of Israel in that day. And he gives this parable to make it very clear to them, not to hide it from them, but to make it clear to them that their rejection of his authority that they made clear at the end of chapter 11, they had no intention of changing. But that would nonetheless not prevent what God was doing. So in this parable, since I've already read it, I just want to break it down for you and just give you what are the obvious parallels to reality here. There is a man, says Jesus. Matthew calls him the landowner in his 
version of this parable. That man is God. He planted a vineyard. We know from Scripture quite clearly, even Isaiah's prophecies, I'll mention momentarily, ethnic Israel, the nation Israel, the descendants physically of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are this vineyard. God established them. And in establishing them, God provided protection. It says he put a hedge. In other words, a fence. Your translation might say a fence. And he gave them all they needed for success. For the vineyard, it was that a wine vat was dug. That is, underneath the press where they would place the grapes and they would step all over them, I assume, and they probably had other ways. It may have been more sanitary, I don't know. But when that would drain out, it would flow into the vat, a, a large area hewn out of the ground, if you will, dug out of the ground. But they would place things under there that would catch it, and then they would put it in the wineskins. So you get the idea. There's this vineyard. He's put a hedge or a fence about it. That could have been any kind of, like, briar bushes of sort. It could have been a, a stone wall of sort. Something to keep the animals out. Something to keep the thieves out, hopefully. But he also built a tower for the workers. For the storage of their tools. For the storage of the wine, perhaps. That sort of thing. And those things represent what God gave to Israel. Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, we're told there, and I've read that to you before at previous times, how God gave to Israel everything, the, the revelation of Scripture, the covenants in that, the promises, the patriarchs, ultimately Christ, everything about the kingdom of God that will secure our entrance into it. All of God's purpose and plan in that so that Christ could come and he could live a righteous life and he could die for our sins on the cross and God would credit that righteous life and credit our sins to us and credit our sins to him and so on and so forth and that we might hear the good news of that and believe it. All of that God began as he laid it out for Israel in scripture, made the old covenant with them to point to the need for the new, and so on and so forth. So they have all these things. God establishes Israel, gives them everything for success. What was it that God wanted? Well, we'll read in a moment that he, or find in a moment that he wanted fruit. Just as a vineyard owner and a vine dresser desires the end product, right? The grapes. They may eat those grapes. They may press those grapes for juice or for winemaking. But that was a, a commodity in Israel in the first century. and still is all around the world in many places. But the man offers a lease. In other words, a covenant with vine dressers or tenants. Um, Israel's leaders. He would do that for a percentage of the harvest and uh, 
then he would leave it to them and go his way. Here we're told he went into a far country. So what's implied here is that in the parable, this was a business venture. There was a wealthy landowner. He invests in a foreign place and he builds something that can make a profit. That's the vineyard. And God's clearly dealing with mankind through Israel, and that's what he's doing. Israel's the vineyard, and there should be fruit, and that fruit should benefit not just Israel, but other people. The idea is that it would be exported, okay? Now, Matthew tells us this parable, and he places it in the context of the kingdom of God. Mark doesn't specifically mention that, but, but Matthew tells us that the kingdom will be taken from these religious leaders, these vine dressers, and it will be given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. What is that nation? What is that people, if you will? It's Jews and Gentiles in the church. No longer is it Israel the nation that is a witness to the world that is supposed to be a bastion of righteousness and justice and peace and love in the kingdom of God. It was to be a light to the Gentiles. It's no longer Israel the nation, it's now the church. And so Matthew points that out. But preceded by this parable in Matthew's account is the parable of the two sons. One was told, go and work in the field. He didn't. One was told, or said he would, but he didn't. And one was told, another told to go and work. And he said, sure, I, or he said, no, I won't. But then he, he went. Anyway, if I didn't botch that too badly, you probably remember that parable. And so there Jesus is emphasizing their rejection of the message that John proclaimed. Because he had just been talking about that. Then he gives the, he's going to give this parable of the landowner or the vineyard. But he told that parable. So that's the context. And we're told that vintage time came. Or at least the New King James that I'm speaking out of this morning says vintage. It might say harvest time in yours or the season as the ESV says. In other words, the appointed time and expected time after the harvest for the landowner to come and collect the agreed-upon portion of the fruit. And what, again, is that fruit? Well, it's not just the righteousness, justice, and peace, and love that I mentioned a while ago. It's repentance and faith and then obedience. And that's what all of the prophets of the Old Testament came to Israel encouraging them to do, urging them to do. It's what God's urging you to do this morning if you haven't. Repent of your sin, believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then follow him. And of course the church is to represent righteousness and justice and love and peace. Those are characteristics of the kingdom of God, but when God comes looking at our lives and he wants to see fruit, he's expecting repentance and faith and obedience. 
So God established the nation, gave it everything to engender that fruit or to produce that fruit, if you will. Christ, however, is the true Israel, Israel the person, not Israel the nation. He yields that fruit pleasing to God, and all united to him by faith also please God as they follow him. So you see the imagery. Now each servant mentioned here in the parable represents an Old Testament prophet. That would include John the Baptist. And they lead up to the Son, right? And who would the Son be in the parable? Quite obviously, that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. So all came calling for Israel's obedience to the Old Covenant, to be mixed with repentance and faith as they looked ahead for the promised servant who would ratify the New Covenant in his own blood. We will acknowledge that as we partake of the communion later. They came wanting those things, urging the people toward that, urging the religious leaders to urge the people toward that. All the leaders, whether it be a prophet or a priest or a king, whatever office it was within Israel, that's what God was calling them to. Repentance, faith, obedience, and represent him as he had established them to represent him. Are you representing God this morning as he has called you to represent him? Another thought to keep in mind. But all these come and they're preaching and they're calling for these things among Israel and their leaders but they are shamefully treated, we're told. They are beaten and wounded by stoning, and some are killed. And the scripture records that. In fact, Jesus indicted the religious leaders of his generation as those who would bear the punishment for the mistreatment of the prophets from the first to the last of them. Now, all these servants had a delegated authority, but the landowner, now he's sending his son. His servants have been wrongfully treated and even murdered, but now he's going to send the son. And if the son comes to you on behalf of his father, that's the same as the father, the landowner, coming. So when God sends His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world, that's the same thing as the Father. He carries all the authority of the Father. And that is why Jesus would say in the Gospel of John, I, my Father, are one. There was no greater authority. Rejecting the Son rejects the landowner, that kind of, of treachery, of treason, if you will, is unthinkable to the landowner in the parable. I will send my son. They will respect him. Although Luke adds, probably they will respect him. 
It's not outside the realm of possibility, considering their track record, that they might mistreat the son. But surely, the authority that he has on my behalf, they will respect. And so Jesus is driving home in the parable that it's unthinkable what you're doing, religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, chief priests, all of that. It's unthinkable what you're doing in rejecting my authority. But I think it also indicates God's legitimate desire, not only for Israel, not only for the religious leaders, but for all people, that they would respond to his word. God's not willing that anyone should perish, the scripture says, but primarily there he's talking about his elect. But elsewhere, God expresses that he has a desire, a, a longing that people, all people, would truly turn from their sins. So God wants them to embrace Christ as they should, although God decreed their rejection of him for a purpose. Peter preached in Acts 2.23 that Christ was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Just as the tenants see the son in the parable as the heir standing in the way of them having the vineyard, so the Jews, their leaders, understand very well who Christ was. And I hope you do this morning. I hope you see Christ as the full representation of the Father coming into this world with all the authority of heaven and earth so that what he has done for us is secure unchangeable it doesn't matter if you agree with it it doesn't matter if you consent to it it doesn't matter if you say I don't want any part of it it's still authority from heaven it's still the will of God it still will be carried out they just didn't want the heavenly father's kingdom that was the problem maybe maybe there are some here this morning that don't really want God's kingdom you like the idea of being a Christian and you choose Christianity like you choose your favorite football team but you're not embracing it because it's God's purpose and plan revealed through His Son, secured in His Son. There wasn't any ignorance on the part of the religious leaders in this case. No misunderstanding. They just wanted Jesus dead. Because when the fullest representation of God is in human flesh and He's among you and He's pointing out your glaring rejection of God's truth. It gets very uncomfortable. And that's why when the Word of God is proclaimed from any pulpit, people who don't want to hear it, people that feel uncomfortable about that, they may get angry. 
And the more that word comes bearing down on them, the more it is preached in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and patience, as Paul told Timothy. The more that is done, the more uncomfortable people become. And when Jesus came doing that, they killed him and cast him out of the vineyard of Israel. He was crucified. They cried out for him to be crucified. When Pilate said, what shall I do with this king of the Jews? They said, kill him. Just as the vine dressers did in the parable. And they foolishly believed they could operate outside God's sovereignty without any consequence. Matthew 21, 41 explains that the, the question Jesus asked in chapter 12, verse 9 here, was answered by the religious leaders themselves. They pronounced their own doom. They hear the parable, and at first they're like, well, of course the landowner's going to, to do what, he, what he's going to do. He'll come and destroy the vine dressers. He'll give the vineyard to someone else who's, who's going to do what they agreed upon. And not treat your servant shamefully. And I believe as soon as that came out of their mouth, they probably went, oh, he's talking about us. But they'd already, already condemned themselves. The just recourse was to destroy the vine dressers. That was the right thing to do. That was justice for their breach of contract, but certainly for their murder. That's how they dealt with God, the Israelite leaders, the Jewish leaders. So Jesus added to the imagery of Isaiah's prophecy. I told you I was going to make reference to Isaiah again. Isaiah 3.14, God indicts the elders of the nation for destroying his vineyard in that they oppressed the poor among them. They weren't very keen on righteousness or justice or mercy, or love, or peace. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, God plants a fertile, cultivated vineyard with choice vines, a tower, a vat, but it yielded sour grapes. That is, it didn't yield repentance. It did not yield faith. It did not yield obedience. The same thing Jesus is alluding to here. Israel was without Christ, and Israel without Christ is not what God wanted. You can't have the kingdom, as Israel was trying to do, just by doing good, just based on morality. You don't get into heaven based on how good you are compared to some other person. Well, I'm not that bad. I may not be that good, but I'm not that bad. So that's, that's the way Israel looked at it. They looked at the law, the Mosaic law, and they looked at the Ten Commandments, and they looked at everything God had revealed through Moses from that lens. This is about, we're, we're sort of a shoe-in, really, because we're ethnic Jews. We're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in order to maintain that, we better do our best to keep the law. 
They didn't even see the idea of, of repentance, of turning from sin and needing a Savior. They didn't see the, uh, the idea of faith in someone who would come and do everything they failed to do for them. Christ kept that old covenant on our behalf, on their behalf. And anyone who turns from sin and places all their hope and all their trust in Christ to provide the righteousness you need and the justification you need before God, you are in the kingdom, Jew or Gentile. Isaiah foretold that Israel would be that vine, but it wouldn't yield the fruit that God was pleased with. Their faithless and corrupt priests and prophets and kings failed to point them to Christ, and the nation's disobedience ended up where? In exile. First in Assyria, later into Babylon. And so when the new covenant is mentioned in Jeremiah and in Isaiah, and is promised to them, they're in exile in a foreign land. And then Isaiah 27, 1 through 6, the Lord declares the day when after destroying all enemies, he'll establish his vineyard and tend it himself. And he will ensure the fruit that he desires. That's, that's the new covenant. That's the promise of God saying, I'm going to come and in grace, rather than law, in grace, I'm going to come and I'm going to ensure you produce the fruit that I want. That God would mercifully even bring ethnic Israel out of exile after destroying their, all their earthly enemies and them seeing what God had done to the ones who had brought them into exile. When they look back and they see that, that was a foreshadowing of the promise of a truly fruitful vineyard that Isaiah spoke of in chapter 27 and verses 1 through 6. I won't take the time to go and read those passages, but please do in Isaiah chapter 3 verse 14, chapter 5 verses 1 through 7, chapter 27 and verses 1 through 6. Now the leaders of Jesus' day were like the unbelieving leaders of Israel's past. Cared nothing for what God had created them to do. They rebelliously desired only a kingdom for themselves, and that was rooted in pride. That was rooted in selfishness. Well, the Bible tells us that that's the condition of the fallen human heart all the way across the board. You don't have to be a Jew to be that way. You don't have to be a religious leader of the Jews to be that way. You can be that way all by yourself. Because while you're not as bad as you could be outwardly in your heart, you are as corrupt as any created being can be before a holy God, and you deserve nothing but eternal damnation. And so the parable condemns these religious leaders in no uncertain terms. And they themselves even acknowledge anyone who would have done what the people, the vine dressers in the parable had done, deserved just treatment. Well, so do all sinners before a holy God. So what's the point of all of this? That's the parable, but what's the point? 
Well, now we're going to talk about Jesus, the rejected stone. And Christ himself quotes Psalm 118. He's alluded to Isaiah's prophecies, but now he's going to quote Psalm 118, which makes clear that he is a foundational person in the purpose and plan of God for salvation, for redemption. You can't be saved from sin. You will know nothing of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven apart from Christ. It is not possible. And so he refers to the psalm that the people themselves had quoted in chapter 11, or chapter uh, verse 26 of Psalm 118. When Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, remember what did they shout? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Same psalm. Now Jesus quotes that psalm and he says, Have you not read this scripture? And by implication, did you not bother to think about it? And he says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. So the one they should have been recognizing, and the people were anticipating, but they really weren't seeing, and the religious leaders were rejecting, that's the very one that the psalmist spoke of as the chief cornerstone earlier in the psalm. And we find here in the New Testament that the psalmist was ultimately talking about Christ. And so as builders looking for a cornerstone to begin construction, the leaders saw Christ and they rejected him. I don't know if there are any brick masons in here. Whenever you, you build a house, I know when we build our house, you've you got to dig the footing and you've got to pour the, the footing first, Okay. So the guy came with his backhoe and he dug it out and then when the concrete truck came and they threw a bunch of rebar in there and poured concrete and if you know anything about construction that's how they build the footing. But the brick mason is going to come and he's going to find that one spot to make the one corner on which the rest of the house will rest. And he want, he's going to lay that first block, in this case a stone, and it has to be a stone with some integrity, right? It can't be broken. It can't be made in, a wrong, in the wrong fashion. It can't be weak. It has to be strong. It has to meet a certain criteria. And that's what the cornerstone was. When the temple was built, there were huge stones in Israel when Solomon built the temple. And they would quarry them and bring them. But there was a cornerstone. It had to be laid and everything else was built on top of that. And so as builders looking for a cornerstone to begin construction, they look at Jesus now and they reject him. They say, he's not fitting. There's a, some wrong with him that we don't, something we don't like. He doesn't fit the building we want to see. And so we're not going to use him. We're not going to acknowledge him even as what God has promised. He didn't meet their specifications. 
as the servant that Isaiah foretold. And yet he was God's choice. And his people praise him for it. We read here, as the psalmist said, this is God's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This was a song of praise as they made their way up to the temple for Passover. How could the leaders in Jesus' day have read this scripture, as Jesus said, and not recognize him? How can anyone ever sit under the preaching of the gospel or the preaching of scripture and the gospel made clear from that and communicated clearly and not consider that and come to the conclusion that you should repent and believe in Christ? Well, it's a heart problem. And only God can change the heart. And from that change of heart comes a change of mind and a change of focus from sin to Jesus Christ. You must be born again, the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 3, or you will neither perceive the kingdom of heaven nor will you enter it. God has to change your heart or you're just like the religious leaders. You can be around the church, you can hear all about Jesus, you can hear all about God's purpose and plan of salvation, you can participate in the worship service, profess Christianity, and do all that, but unless your heart is changed, you've never really seen yourself the sinner you are, you've never really seen Christ the Savior that He is. And you do not accept what He's done for you by His perfect life and His sacrificial death and His resurrection. Therefore, you are not in Him by faith. You are not in union with Christ. You say, that's, that's a scary thought. Well, it should be scary. It should make you pause. It should make you think. Because what God has done is glorious. It's marvelous in the eyes of those who see Christ for who He is. But if you don't see Him that way, if this is not the Christ that I'm proclaiming to you this morning, but that's not the Christ you're trusting in, you have no hope of, in, of entering heaven. You have no hope of eternal life. Pray this morning, God will open your heart. Pray that God will open the hearts of those around you. Pray that God will open the hearts of all people in this church, of all people in this community, of all people in this country, and indeed the world. We should pray that they would see this is a marvelous thing and praise God for it with a repentant and obedient faith. Christ is the promised Emmanuel of Isaiah 7. He's the stone of Isaiah chapter 8. And we are told that he offends and causes to stumble all who lack saving faith. Just as the wicked leaders of Israel of old. And so Matthew and Luke, though Mark does not record it here, add that Jesus said this, Whoever falls on this stone will be broken that is, brought to repentance and thus faith. But whoever, on whomever that stone falls, it will grind him to powder. 
That's judgment. And verse 12 indicates the latter for these leaders. They were now angrier than ever. They didn't say, wait, and have a moment in which they were awakened. They were not converted on the spot. Instead, they doubled down because he had spoken the parable against them, obviously. They wanted him dead still, but they couldn't do anything, Mark tells us, because they were afraid of the multitude of people who still at that time were favorable toward Jesus, although they would change their tune in but a few days. So they left him and they went away. I hope if you've never received Christ this morning, you will not walk away from him as the religious leaders did. That Jesus is the chosen and well-placed foundational person, the key to God's redemptive purpose and plan, could not have been more clear to these people. But it was not mixed with faith. They chose a faithless religion rather than faith in Jesus, even though their religion pointed clearly to Christ. There's a lot of false Christianity going around, always has been. A lot of false Christians sitting in even good churches. I hope that doesn't describe you. But if you choose merely an external religion over faith in Christ, you're as damned as the next person who rejects the Lord Jesus. Lack of faith is clarified by, really, your reaction to this parable, just as it clarified the reaction of the Jewish leaders, or it clarified their lack of faith. Well, what's Mark telling us by what Jesus says in the parable and the point that he makes? God's kingdom is built on Jesus Christ alone. And it is arrogant. It is foolish. It is damning to suppose otherwise or to respond to Christ in any other way than repentance and faith. When you hear the gospel, you either turn from sin and trust in Christ or you hate him. You say, well, hate's a strong, strong term. I don't necessarily hate Jesus. I think he was a, a good man. I think he was a wise teacher. I think he did miracles, perhaps, even. Well, that's not the same thing as saving faith. To believe you can reject God's sovereign purpose in Christ... And escape the penalty for treason is to believe the lie of Satan. And what was the lie of Satan? Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say that? I mean, come on. He just doesn't want you to be like him and determine what's right and wrong for yourself. You can make your own religion. If you just feel like being religious outwardly, 
Or you can believe whatever you want. You can even say you aren't religious. You are an atheist. I don't even believe in God, even if you really do, because you know he's really there. That's how people reason. That's how they've always reasoned. And apart from the Holy Spirit changing your heart to reason otherwise, you'll walk away. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7? You're building a house, build it on rock and not on the sand, right? Jesus is the cornerstone laid on a sure footing of God's foreordained redemptive purpose and plan. In ancient times, they would just dig down until they hit some good solid rock, and then they would try to lay the foundation on that. A wise man does that, says Jesus. A foolish man builds his house on something unstable. You, you rest your life and your eternal future on what is unstable and uncertain and cannot guarantee you anything. But Christ can guarantee you eternal life. The God that we know is there. The eternal, self-existent, all-powerful, rational, moral, expressive being that we know is there, that all people know is there, is perfectly capable of communicating to you and me, his creatures, his purpose and his plan for all things. And he has done that in the pages of Scripture. And the Scripture says that Jesus Christ is the foundation. He is that cornerstone on which all else is built. Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 20, or verses 19 through 22. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints with the saints and members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. To worship God, you must be united to Christ. You must be, as it were, laid on top of him. And this builds, as it were, a house, a temple, a place of worship for God in the Spirit, whereby we worship God in spirit and in truth. Not a physical building, but the people of God, the body of Christ, the Scripture calls us. First Peter chapter 2 and verses 4 through 10. We are living stones, we're told here, built into that house. Listen. Coming to him as, a living, as to a living stone, coming to Christ, that is. He is that living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also are living stones, and being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer a spirit, up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Isaiah 28, 
verse 16. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That quote from Psalm 118. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, Isaiah 8:14. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. That is, it was given to them, but... It was not mixed by, with faith, as the writer of Hebrews says. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Unbelieving Israelites, though they had all the privilege are nonetheless outside the new covenant. But if they repent and believe, they are grafted back in, as Paul says in Romans, into the vine, which is Christ. A lot of imagery, but all wonderfully descriptive. Listen, any person or entity that desires a kingdom of their own is outside the kingdom of God. Even if they call themselves Christian, they can, as Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they can in the day of judgment cry out, but Lord, we did this in your name and that in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practiced lawlessness. Apart from the Christ and His church, the Christ of Scripture, there is no kingdom. That's God's purpose and plan of redemption in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? I hope you're just not thinking about when I'm going to quit. I want you to think about what I've said. Isn't that wonderful? What God has done and is doing. Do you think that God's salvation in Christ needs to meet with your approval? Do you believe that if you aren't willing to agree with it, that it somehow just doesn't apply to you? Well, you couldn't be more wrong. Because if knowing who Christ is, you've truly repented of your sin and you've looked to Him in faith, then you have a secure foundation. If not... Woe to you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you how clear it is that even the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, those who hated Christ and wanted to kill him, even they could understand the clear picture our Lord painted in the parable. And we can understand it and understand the point of it all as we look at Psalm 118 and know that Christ is, although rejected by men, the chief cornerstone of all that you are doing to save people from sin and bring them into heaven with you. Our Father, we praise you and we thank you for this. And ask that you will open hearts today. Help us heed your word and walk by it. 
glorify you in that, to rest in it, to find our great comfort and assurance in it. This we pray in his name. Amen.